God, I just pray this morning that we would get a deeper sense of the depth of our need for You. I ask that You speak to us through Your Word in a way that changes our lives. Lord, Your Word is powerful. You spoke and everything we know came into existence. So we believe that as this morning we hear Your Word, that it can transform our lives, that it can make a living difference in our lives today. Please come, Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts because of Jesus, because of Your love for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. David Crisp had done it for 22 years. He'd been going around fields in Great Britain. Maybe you've seen this before at the, the beach. You'll see somebody going around with a metal detector. Have you ever seen that? Going around the beach hoping that maybe somebody dropped the wedding band or maybe they'll find some lost piece of jewelry that's been hidden for years. And David Crisp had gone around Great Britain's fields for years with a metal detector and never found anything significant for 20-some years until 2010. In 2010, he was going through the field when suddenly he heard something on the metal detector and, and he began to, to hone in on that, that signal until finally he dug up a little coin. And then he found that there were more coins. And as he dug deeper, eventually he found that there was this large clay pot buried under the ground. And in this clay pot were some 52,000 old Roman coins. You see, they, they're not sure exactly how this happened, but they oftentimes, in olden times, they'd take a clay pot, they'd put all their money in it, and if an enemy was invading and attacking, they would take that clay pot, they'd dig a hole really fast, and they'd bury it expecting to come back, or at least not wanting those people who are coming to destroy them to get their wealth. They're called coin hoards. And here he, David Chris, he was so excited because this is worth some 250,000 pounds. Uh, unfortunately, he never ended up with any of the money because the crown of England claimed it. But here he was, he found this incredible treasure hidden in a clay pot. Hidden in a clay pot. You know, in 1946, there was another Bedouin shepherd who was out in the desert, and he found a clay pot. An interesting way, actually, how he found it. This Bedouin shepherd, he was looking up in the mountains, and he saw this cave up, up on the side of a mountain. And as he saw that cave there, they assumed that he began throwing rocks to see if he could throw the rocks into that cave. And pretty soon, he finally got a rock, and he threw it far enough and hard enough, and it finally went into that cave, and he heard something. So I don't know, maybe he threw another rock up there and he, he heard something breaking in the cave and, and he wondered what it was. So finally they crawled up in the cave. They ended up falling into the cave and he found that there was this pot with scrolls in it. What were these scrolls? He was a Bedouin shepherd. He didn't know what these scrolls were for. He took them back to his family and had about four of them there and they, they put them on the, the, the side of their tent. They had a tent pole there and they just had them there so that they could show visitors. When visitors came by, they'd say, look at our scroll that we found and then they put it back there and visitors would come by. It was just an old piece of paper that he found in a clay pot. Eventually, they decided that maybe they should try to sell these. So they went to a marketplace where there was a trader of antiquities and he gave them a hundred dollars. 
for their four scrolls. And they were pretty excited about that. Eventually, somebody came by and bought these scrolls and discovered that these are the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we now found. They went and they found a bunch of other caves and a bunch more scrolls. And here it is, just something that seems totally meaningless, except for that these are the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Hebrew Bible. These date back from 300 years before Jesus. So here's the incredible thing about this finding is that 300 years before Jesus, you have these scrolls, and these are the manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible that today we have the Bible, but most of what we had up until this point came from the Middle Ages. So you had, you know, around 1200 AD after the death of Christ, a thousand years. So we didn't know at that point if these are accurate, because all we had was copies of copies of copies of copies. And I know at school, you probably sometimes have people copy things down, and does it always turn out exactly like you expect or exactly like is written in the book when you write a copy down? You tend to make a few errors. So we don't know for sure, or we didn't know up until that point, if these were accurate or not. But when we found these scrolls, we found scrolls from every single one of the Old Testament books except for one. And when they went through these manuscripts and look at the Hebrew text, it was virtually verbatim of what we have today. This is incredible because this is from before the time of Jesus. So we know that the Bible that we hold in our hands today, that we can trust it, that, that it hasn't been tampered with by man over the thousands of years because we have these old manuscripts that clearly show us that we have the same Bible today that Jesus had. We can trust the Word of God But here you had this Bedouin shepherd who found this incredible thing and took it back to his family. And he had no idea the treasure that he had. He just saw some old scrolls inside of a jar. And what difference did that make? What was the importance of these scrolls to him? Sometimes we don't recognize the treasure that we have. We've been talking about Gideon for the past couple of weeks. The first week we talked about how God showed up And he called Gideon and he said, God is with you, you mighty man of valor. And where was Gideon at that point in time? He was hiding in the wine press, threshing wheat. He was a coward in a way. He was hiding from the Midianites. He was trying to get just a little bit of food. But God saw in him the potential. God saw in him what he could become. God called him what he saw that he would be rather than what he was at that moment. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. This morning in our collegiate Sabbath school class, one of the the members of the class read it in his version. It says that no one should brag, I think is basically how it worded it, no one should brag about himself. God has chosen the weak things. He's chosen the foolish things. The things that don't always make sense in order to shame the things that are wise. And God chose Gideon. God chose this, who was he? How did he respond to the angel? He said, I think you have the wrong guy. He said, I am 
from the least clan. But not only that, I'm the least in my own family. I'm, I'm a nobody. God, you've got the wrong person. You're calling me a mighty warrior. You're calling me this man of valor. But I don't have what it takes, God. But God says, you go and you fight in this your strength because I am with you. And patriarchs and prophets says this about Gideon. Says the leader who God chose to overthrow the Midianites occupied no prominent position in Israel. He was not a ruler, a priest, or a Levite. He thought himself the least in his father's house, but God saw in him a man of courage and integrity. He was distrustful of himself and willing to follow the guidance of the Lord. That's what God is looking for. We talked about last week how God is looking for character. He's looking for those who are willing to be wholly consecrated, who are willing to tear down the altars of Baal, just like Gideon went and took his father's bull and teared down the father's altar to Baal. He's looking for those who are going to hold nothing back from him. And he's looking for those who are wholly dependent upon him. We pick up the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. In Judges chapter 7, we continue with the story. And it begins by addressing Gideon with that name that he earned in the story we talked about last week. Do you remember what name his father called him? Jerubbabel, or Jerubbel. Basically, it was to say, this is the one who tore down Baal's altar, and if Baal is God, let him deal with him. It was a blasphemous name against Baal. It was to say, Baal can't do anything, apparently, because this guy is still alive. So then Jerobel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, notice this verse, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. We talked a little bit about this last week, about how God chose, first of all, those who weren't afraid, and God chose those who lapped the water. But notice here, it says, lest Israel claim what? Glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You see what God's concerned with in this whole story of Gideon. God could have showed up earlier on, and he could have worked through a bunch, a massive army of Israel, but God said, I need people who aren't going to claim the glory for themselves. I need a person who's the least of the clan, the one that's, that nobody expects, so that they realize that I'm the loving God of the universe and that I care about their lives and that I'm working in their lives. Again and again throughout Bible history, this is the way God works. You have David. David is the, the youngest in his family. David's the one that's totally forgotten. He's the shepherd off in the field, but he is the one after God's own heart. He's the one that God says he's going to be the king. Continue in Judges chapter 7. After, in verse 3, it says, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful, and we talked about last week how that was a, a proclamation that was always to be made when they went out to war. They were always to proclaim that if anyone is afraid, let him go home. But they hadn't made that proclamation because they were scared. They wanted to keep their 35,000 or their 32,000 there. They wanted to make sure that, 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 that they had all of their, 
their military might. But 10,000 on that day returned, and then they were down to just 22,000. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink the water. Notice here the difference in these two. We talked about last week about being focused, that the one is focused on the, the task at hand. But there's something else about this, these, this distinction. On the one hand, you have the group who comes down and, and as they're getting to the water, they don't, they don't dare to, to do anything except for to, to just grab a little, little bit of water in their hands and they keep focused. They're, they're, recognizing the danger that they're in. They're recognizing their need to be protected. They're recognizing that, that they're in a battle. And then you have the other group. The other group who's, they're fine. They get down and they just begin to drink as much as they can and they're just gulping down the waters. I probably would have been if I was thirsty at that point in a, a dry part of, of the land. But they didn't feel their need. They felt self-sufficient. They, they weren't worried about being attacked. They're just there enjoying life and feeling okay. And God says, I don't need people who don't recognize their need of me. I don't need people who, who just feel self-sufficient. I need those who are focused, those who recognize that they're in a battle, those who see their desperate need. And the story continues the number of those who lapped, verse 6 said, was 300. And then verse 7, Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Verse 9, and it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, isn't God so merciful? Gideon, if you're still afraid, I know that I burned up the sacrifice for you and you saw that. I know that I confirmed three, the two different times with the fleece that, that this is the right thing. But if you are still afraid, go down to the camp. Verse 10, but if you are afraid, go down, go down to the camp with prayer your servant and you shall hear what they say and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened Go down to go down against the camp. Then he went down with prayer his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. So this begins a story where Gideon goes down into the camp and as he gets there, it says that when he gets close enough, as close as he can get, he gets near the armed men, he overhears something. He hears one soldier talking to another soldier and the soldier says, hey, I've had a dream. I, I had a dream last night and he, he has terror in his voice. He says, I had a dream that all of a sudden there was this large barley loaf and it came rolling down the hill and it smashed the tent. Now these are nomads, the Midianites. They constantly move around. They always lived in tents. And so this isn't a bad omen for them because 
Tents are what they dwelt in. Tents are what was their protection. And this tent gets smashed. And what does it get smashed by? A barley loaf. Now, does anyone know what was barley? Was that a, a grain that the wealthy would eat? It's a small grain. It's a, it was the grain that the, the poor people would eat. It was the, the common bread. It was, it was the least bread. It was the bread that people didn't really want. You notice the trend throughout this story. Gideon, he's the least in his family. He's the, he says, why me? God's saying, hey, the 32,000 is too much. The 10,000 is too much. I need 300 who recognize their need. And then as they go and they see this dream here, here you have this barley loaf, this not, a bread shouldn't be taking out a tent. God working through the humble. God working through the meek. God working through those who recognize their need of Him. So Gideon is encouraged by this dream because actually the soldier himself interprets it in verse 14. He says, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Verse 15, and so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. When God does something in your life, what is your response? When God does something in my life, what is my response? What does it do to me? What did it do for Gideon? When God confirmed, here's this dream that, that shows him that he's on the right track, that he's doing the right thing. When God showed up like that for him, what was his response? He worshipped. God is looking for those who will give him all the glory. God is looking for those who will respond with worship. So Gideon draws up the battle plans. In verse 16, then he divided the 300 men into three companies and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. This is an odd battle plan, isn't it? No, no talk of swords, no talk of spears, but he take, has them take their trumpets and he has them take torches with an empty pitcher over it. And in this pitcher, you'd have the torch what happens to fire when there's not much oxygen? It would just be smoldering inside of this pot. And so they're supposed to take this, apparently, so that they could be concealed in the darkness and they were to sneak down close to the camp with their trumpet and their clay pot with the torch inside. Go with me to Second Corinthians chapter 4, our Scripture reading. You know, Jesus has told us that we are to be the light of the world. He's told us some incredible things about our lives. He says that a, a, a light set on a hill can't be hidden. And yet so often in my life, I've wondered, why don't I shine more brightly for God? Where, where is this glory that Jesus is talking about? Why don't I exude Jesus to everybody that I'm around? I want people to know Jesus when they come in contact with me. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it uses some very similar metaphors. Starting in verse 5, actually. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. It's not about us. It's about Him. And ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine 
out of darkness? How did God ask for light to shine out of darkness? How did God command light to shine out of darkness? Remember the story in Genesis 1-1? The earth was there and it says that it was formless, it was void, and darkness was over the face of the waters. We're living in a time period where the earth is filled with darkness. We watch the news and we see that everything is darkness. We go down Main Street in Templeton and we see darkness. We see Halloween things that are, are quite scary, honestly. I hate this time of year. I don't hate this time of year, but I hate some of the things that get put up this time of year. There's so much darkness all around us. So in Genesis 1, you have darkness covering the waters. Uh, well, you have darkness. It's formless and void. You have darkness. And then you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And those of you who have studied Bible prophecy, what do waters represent in Revelation? Revelation 17 talks about peoples. They are many peoples. So you have here God commanding, let there be light. All God did was He spoke and there was light. And today we see everything around us. We see colors. We see all of this planet. We see it because of those words which God spoke way back in the very beginning. So here, Paul's using a metaphor in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He's comparing it to that. He's saying, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we might feel like, well, what do I have to offer? How am I going to offer anything of value to my next door neighbor, to my friend? Do I really have anything to offer? But it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. That same God who can shine in your hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ. And how does He do that? He does it through His Word. Through those words that were recorded on those old scrolls and the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found. Those, those words that maybe the paper can be destroyed but they are words that have creative power. They have transformative power. They transform who we are. It's incredible to see what God can do in the lives of people who don't feel like they have anything to offer, like Gideon. When they're exposed to the Word of God, I think I've told you before in my testimony that I just began sharing I just began reading the Bible every day when I was at La Sierra University, and I didn't change a lot of things in my life. But as I began each and every day just to read a couple of chapters in the Bible, just to to ask God to speak to me, to fill my heart with love, and I was recognizing that I was a hateful person. I was a person with a temper. I was a person that I wasn't very happy about the life I was living, and I needed Jesus in my life. As I began just to read the Bible a little bit every day, light began to come into my life. And God began to transform me in ways that I never expected. This verse goes on to say in verse 6, verse 7, but we have this treasure. What is this treasure? It's what it said back in verse 6, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we have this treasure. And where is this treasure? We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. 
We have this treasure and it's contained inside of earthen vessels or another for the Greek there is just clay pots. We have this treasure inside of clay pots. It's the the light of the glory of God that's revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. But there's a problem. It's hidden inside of clay pots. It's it's not necessarily visible for the world. When you when Gideon is approaching this army, is does does the army see the light that is smoldering inside of that clay jar? They don't recognize the light at that point in time. In my life, as I began reading, people around me didn't notice right away that God is changing my life. God is so merciful. God takes the foolish things and He enables them to do things for His glory despite all of their weaknesses. I remember as that coming year, I decided to take a year off and do ministry. And I remember the day when I was going to go preach my first sermon. I it was part of the deal and being on this ministry team. And I, I told the leader of the team, I said, I never ever want to preach a sermon. <laughs> I, I just have no desire. I don't want to be up front. I, I'll do the background stuff. Like I'll do anything you need, but just don't make me get up front and preach. So they said, no, you need to. You need to, to, to have the experience. So I remember writing down this sermon and just praying and asking God to help me. Went to this Asian fellowship in Bakersfield, this small little group. And as I stood there in front of them, I was just quivering. And I remember just reading through <laughs> my sermon. <laughs> and I remember just couldn't wait till I got to the end of it. And finally, when I got to the end of it, I was just so glad it was over. God is so merciful. He's able to take the foolish things and to begin to use them in some odd way to make an impact. God's done that again and again throughout history. You read about people like uh, Dwight Moody. Did you know that he was a person who people criticized the grammar that he used, even though he was this great evangelist who impacted millions of people? In fact, It says, when he first arose to speak in a prayer meeting, one of the deacons assured him that, in his opinion, he would serve God best by keeping still. So he went to talk in prayer meeting. They said, no, you just better be quiet. You'd serve God best that way. Another critic who praised Moody for his zeal in filling the the pews at Plymouth Church said that he should realize his limitations and not attempt to speak in public. You make too many mistakes in grammar, said he. I know I make mistakes, Moody replied. And I lack many things, but I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. He then paused and looking at the man searchingly inquired in his own inimitable way, look here, friend, you've got grammar enough. What are you doing with it for the master? You know, God is able to take us and to use us when we fully commit ourselves to Him. When we're willing to be used by Him, despite our own weakness, despite the fact that we may just be in the wine press threshing weed and we don't feel like a mighty man of valor, God wants to take you and He wants to do incredible things through you in your life. He wants to take His Word and as He speaks His Word into your life, it's going to begin to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ in your own life. But that is still contained in an earthen vessel. 
Something that we have to recognize needs to be broken on the rock of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 21, Jesus said, don't, haven't you read the scriptures? Don't you know about the cornerstone that was a stumbling block to many? And he, he goes on to say that we need to be broken on this rock. If we're not broken on this rock, then eventually in the end, it will smash us. We have to be broken. We have to recognize our desperate need for Jesus. Just like Gideon and his 300 men. When we go back to the story in Judges chapter 7, it's incredible to see the victory that God brings about. In Judges chapter 7 and verse 17, he said, And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Can you imagine what it was like in the Midianite camp that night? They were all sleeping in their tents when suddenly they hear a shout. They hear breaking pots. They suddenly, the countryside is lit up with these torches all around. And for all they know, there's a vast army there. And for what God is doing, God is winning a mighty victory through 300 men who are wholly committed to God. 300 men who are willing to be broken. 300 men who are willing to be nothing so that God could be everything. Dwight L. Moody went on to say that the most effective or the, the most powerful thing in his life was when Mr. Henry Varley, a famous evangelist at the time, had told him, the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully consecrated to him. That transformed Moody's life. He said, though I may not have grammar, though I may not be able to speak with the tongues of men and of angels, though I don't have all these incredible gifts, I'm going to be wholly consecrated to Jesus. I'm going to give my all to God. I'm going to humbly allow Jesus to use me. I'm going to recognize that I've got nothing to offer, but Jesus has everything. Throughout the Bible, it says that God delights in those who have a broken heart, a contrite heart. In fact, go with me quickly to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2. Talks about the power of God's Word and how God longs to come close to those who have a contrite heart. Verse one starts with, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made and all these things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. This one I'll look to, the one who recognizes their poverty of heart, the one who recognizes that they're but a barley loaf being used by the hand of God, the one who recognizes that they're the least in their family, the one who recognizes their need of God. You notice this in the lives of the apostles. 
The life of Peter was one in which he was very confident about what he was able to accomplish for God. He was the one who would always speak up. He was the one who was always in that argument about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to sit on God's right, on Jesus' right hand or his left hand in the kingdom. He was the one who, when Jesus came to him and said, you're all going to be forsaking me tonight. He said, not me, God. And not me, Jesus. I, I'm the one who, who will still stand for you. Even though I have to die, I'm still going to stand for you, Jesus. Jesus said, tonight you're going to deny me three times. And it was that night when Peter denied Christ and Jesus looked at him in that moment when the rooster crowed that everything changed for Peter. Peter suddenly recognized that he had nothing to offer. That he was just an empty clay pot that was desperate for the glory of God to be revealed in him. And as he went out, and it says he wept bitterly, in fact, it seems that he went out to the Mount of Olives, the very place where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had been pleading, not my will, but your will be done. He went there and he prayed for forgiveness, and God transformed the life of Peter. To the point where Peter is the one that we find preaching the very first sermon in the book of Acts. And he's preaching and 3,000 are baptized. But Peter is still the man who recognizes his humble need of God. No matter how much glory takes place. When he and John are walking into the temple in Acts chapter 3, and they see the lame man begging, and they have nothing to give him, they say, silver and gold, have we don't have any of that. But what we do have is we can tell you in the name of Jesus to rise up and walk. And immediately the man leaps up and he's praising God and the crowds get so excited, they're thrilled. Look at, here's people who can heal somebody. How would you feel if you were able to walk and you see somebody who's lame and you say, rise up in the name of Jesus? I think I might get pretty excited. I might think, wow, look at what I just did. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty amazing thing. But when the crowds come to Peter in Acts 3, when they come to Peter and John and they're, they're beginning to just be marveling at what they have done, Peter says this in Acts chapter 3 in verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Why are you looking at us? We don't have anything to offer. Just look to Jesus. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Are we willing to be broken for Jesus? I remember back last spring, I think it was, I was pleading with God at the previous place I was working in ministry just for Him to work a mighty revival, to see Him do incredible things. I said, God, we've prayed so much. We've We've worked so hard. Why don't we see greater things happening? And suddenly I realized something. That it's in God's mercy that He doesn't answer more of my prayers for power. Because God sees what's in my heart. And God recognizes that if He were to, at this moment, fill me with power, and I, I was just able to preach incredible sermons and thousands were baptized on the spot, he knows the danger that that could be to my own heart. If I was able to raise people up from the dead, if I was able to do all these incredible things, 
says, you know, your pride could be a problem. What motivates you is not yet just the love of God and the love of people. God is waiting for a people who are solely focused on their need for God, who are motivated only by their love for God, who have no ambition for their own glory. That's the whole story of Gideon. The story of Gideon is looking for just 300 people who are willing to give all the glory to God, who are willing to let it result in worship to the King of Kings. So how about you? How about me? I want to shine for Jesus, don't you? But I want to do it for the right reasons. And I want to recognize that I desperately need Jesus to shine through me. Otherwise, I have nothing to offer to this dark world. I had a professor at seminary who suggested that you take and you write on a three by five card or you print out on a, a postcard and poster and put it up on your wall. Who is this about? Put it in a place that you're going to walk by, maybe by your mirror, and ask yourself the question, who is this about? When I'm working for Jesus, when I'm working at the apple pie make, a great thing, when I'm at the thrift store volunteering, when when I'm going out to visit people and following up from the It Is Written studies, when I'm going to my neighbor's house and I'm bringing them bread to, to try to invite them to church, who is this about? God can only use us powerfully when it's only all for the glory of Jesus. When we're willing to be broken so that He can finally shine out in all of His glory. Then the victory will be won for Jesus. Do you want to allow Christ to be everything? Do you want to only live for His glory? That's my desire. And if that's your desire, I just want to invite you to raise your hand with me as I pray. Father in heaven, we are just earthen vessels, but you have put in us an incredible treasure, the treasure of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, some of our torches are just smoldering. We're just waiting for the pot to be broken so that you can shine out in all of your glory, so that the people around us can see that it's not about us, but that it's all about you. Father, please fill us with your humble heart. Fill us with the desire to only witness for your glory. Lord, may everything that takes place in this church, may it result in glory to Jesus. May we never take any of the glory for ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.